0: This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR, sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food secure state, and by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now, here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening. Food insecurity is a man made problem, it isn't organic, necessary, Are the result of natural evil, but it is, in fact, evil. Food insecurity is the creation of mankind. It is the leftovers of a system that pollutes our minds, poisons our hearts, and eats away at our souls. The state of being food insecure is not right, it is not godly, and it is not the consequence of wrong or sin, it just is. Food insecurity exists because we allow it to. It is the consequence of a human system that limits, holds back, designates and keeps people in need. There is no design, no plan, no benefit, no good that comes from hunger. It is immoral, indecent and inexcusable. Food insecurity manifests itself as a bully. It taunts us. It wants us to believe it is bigger than we are, better than we are, and even though it is a man-made peril, it wants us to think it is beyond us to solve. Food insecurity is a multi-layered complex problem that attaches itself to other human tragedies like poverty, disparity, and inequity. Food insecurity hides behind inequality and disguises itself as a mere symptom When in fact, it may be a root cause, or at least it is the first step towards being destitute of freedom, achievement and hope. Food insecurity erodes drive, motivation, inspiration and the will to do more and be better. Hunger and food insecurity may not be recognized as a root cause of these deeper rooted societal challenges by sociologists. But what food insecurity is, is job one. Make no mistake by taking hunger off the table. It is the first step in helping individuals and families achieve self-sufficiency. And that is why we say food first folks food first. Join Jerry Brisson and me, Dr. Phil Knight, as we wax philosophical about the problem of evil that is food insecurity, its origins, and what practical measures our network is doing to rid Michigan of this stubborn man-made problem called food insecurity. That's next on this edition of Food First Michigan. for listening, everyone. Glad that uh, you're with us. And Jerry, the monologue kind of gets us off into the deep end of the pool here. Um, but I think it would be good as we think about the problem of food insecurity and why it even exists to look back at some of the origins and some of the research that's been done. And I know you prepared for this show by doing some of that research. So so let's, let's think about you know, I got asked a question recently by a legislator like, Phil, I want to help with this problem, but I can't even understand why we're here. Why do we even have a hunger problem and a food insecurity problem in America?
1: You know, I liked how you started out by saying that, you know, however we got here, it's wrong. <laughs> Right. It's evil. any way you look at it. However, we got here. This isn't where we should be. And I think that's a, a, a wise point to start with, because when you start to break down, why is it that people in our country or even anywhere in the world, if you want to go really big with the question, why is it that anyone would be hungry? And of course, People have a lot of ideas about that, and and these ideas are old, old, old. They go probably as far back as the first cave paintings. You know what I mean? I think the first cave painting ever discovered was basically saying, in that time, the world is going to hell in a handbag. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> right. uh, it's it's you know. So so we've grappled with this with this issue of you know, are are individuals responsible for their own successes and failures, or is society Responsible for making conditions that make people more or less able to succeed, and what is the mix of that, and how do you balance that, and and what's a cause and what's an effect, and it's a it's a complicated issue, and I will say that there are tens of thousands of pages written on this topic of why have we gotten here. So mm-hmm. so I mean I I'll, I'll start my response by saying well it's complicated. <laughs> which which may seem like a cop-out but but i'm gonna point to this so I, i i did one of the nicest shortest little pieces of work um And and I'll give you credit for for rediscovering this, doctor, because I've read it, but it was so long ago. It's the UPS Foundation and the Congressional Hunger Center in 2004 did a report called Hunger in America, where the purpose of that report was to try to explore this very issue. Why do we have hunger in America? And and I think there's one particular paragraph that I'm going to quote from it that I think gives the basic answer, which is this. The root causes of hunger, the broad range of evidence suggests, arise from a complex interaction of employment status, educational level, inadequate income from employment, marital status, the presence of children, and especially access to food assistance either from the private or public sectors. So I'm going to read it again because there's a lot in there, but we're going to pick this apart a little bit. It's that the root causes of hunger arise from a complex interaction of employment status, educational level, inadequate income from employment, marital status, the presence of children, and especially access to food assistance from the private or public sectors. So so when we think about, you know, a lot of people want to start the conversation by saying that poverty causes hunger. This report actually says, in fact, It is hunger in many cases that cause poverty. And so Mm -hmm. when we think about, you know, why we're here, I mean, why we're here is because we haven't done what we need to do to put food first, folks. And when you put food first, you actually begin to address the underlying causes, not just of hunger, but of poverty itself. And I think that, you know, again, this is stuff we've talked about a lot on our show, but to go back to the, to the, um, The research that supports this point of view is really, really important. And again, I'm going to read another conclusion from this report. The scientific evidence suggests that poverty doesn't cause hunger, but rather that hunger, even moderate to mild undernutrition at critical stages of child development in particular, may be a leading contributing factor to developmental and academic problems and ultimately lead to poverty in later life. Hmm. So here we are. Why do we have this problem? And part of the reason we have the problem, and I know this is like the most obvious answer of all time, is because we haven't solved it is why we have it. You know, we have right. enough food. We have the logistics that we need. We we know the impact of not solving it is incredibly costly, and yet we persist in not solving it. So... Our approach has been to continue to break that down into bite-sized chunks that can be managed one at a time. We like simple ideas. We like simple solutions. We like to paint the universe with one broad brush that helps explain (laughs) every problem all at one time, whether that's people are lazy or whether that's society is unjust. Both are broad brush attempts to try to make complicated reality simple and they're both true and they're both wrong.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So so there well, we are, you know, I mean I think in the in the simplest of all ways of, of answering the question of why we have this problem because life is complicated and life is unfair and we haven't really put forth the right amount of effort to show what we should do how much it's going to cost what the benefits going to be and then when you apply that solution did it actually work how much did it work for who and for how long
0: right excellent that's 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 really good jerry uh, so let me back up just a little bit and piggyback some of the things that you've shared So, you know, when we talk about why do we have this problem here in America and as you said anywhere, um, it's certainly not from a lack of food and it's not from a lack of logistical know-how. I mean, I mean, we can move stuff from A to B, you know, I mean, we've got FedEx. We've got everything down to DoorDash. I mean, we, we can move stuff from A to B pretty well in this country. So it's not really a logistical challenge. It's more about alignment and looking at these these causation factors that you described in that first quote. But you started out by saying there's a age-old argument here about personal responsibility and the responsibility in society. And you said is it either or is it or and I would definitely say that it's both. It's yes. The answer to that question is there. Does the person who is food insecure have personal responsibility to not be food insecure. Yes does society have a role to play in helping that person achieve self-sufficiency so they don't need community-based organizations or the government yes now how do we formulate that plan so that it works and as we've discussed on this show many many times one size fits all doesn't work for everyone and so we have to be a little more attuned and a little more Flexible in our policies and the administration of those policies, in order to make sure that we're meeting the need and giving people the best chance for success that we can. So I wanted to just pick that back up as to why we have this. Sure, people have a responsible, a personal responsibility, but we as a country, what what kind of culture do we want to live in? We have a collective responsibility as well.
1: Yeah, and and you know, so we we like to think about. Um, if we're gonna if we're gonna help somebody right if if somebody needs our help, we like to say well you know what if it's not their fault that they're having this problem, well then I'm gonna be willing to help. But if it is their fault, then I'm gonna say you know what you did this to yourself and so you need to figure out a way out of it. All right, well mm. uh, depending on the severity of the problem, that might be okay and it might not be. So let's take the problem of someone dives into a pool, it's too deep and they don't swim well. Now they're drowning. So do you say sorry pal you shouldn't have jumped in the pool is that what you do obviously not you throw them the lifeline and you help them out of the pool right so so you know the 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 dynamic of this really really is one of how much compassion can you afford it Mm. really comes down to how much compassion can you afford can you afford All the compassion that's required, regardless of whether people are making bad choices or whether society has pushed people down or a combination of both those things. Can you afford to just not care about any of that and just be compassionate and give everybody everything they need all the time? Well, I I think the answer is obviously no. That, that kind of light world view is just not affordable. There, there's no way you can get there from here. One of the conversations we had at our, at our board meeting at Gleaners just this last week or two was, was we, we had people look at, how can our work be, be similar to a birthday party? You might say, what? But think about what happens at a birthday party. The person who's, whose birthday it is is getting gifts that they didn't deserve Right. They're getting gifts because people just care about them and they want them to be happy and they want them to be, you know, know that they that they're cared about and they want them to feel valuable. And there's so much that we do for each other, whether we deserve it or not, if you think about it in the context of a birthday party. On the other hand, there's an awful lot of, of people that that might say, well, what I really want for my birthday is a pony. And it's like, wait a minute. We can't give you a pony. You don't have any place to put a pony. It might be a really cool idea to want a pony, but how about if I get, how about a dog? Would that work? Right? And so the bottom line is you don't give people everything they want at a birthday party, but you do give them something, you know, they want and need. Right. Mm. And so when we think about affordable compassion, it's not antithetical to caring about people. It, it has everything to do with caring about people in the same way that we do, for example, at a birthday party.
0: Great analogy there, Jerry. And it reminds me of Adam Smith, kind of the father of the welfare system, who simply said that we are leveraging the wealth of the nation for the betterment of its citizens. And so those are leverage points, those are levers that people are able to pull in order to elevate themselves. And I think that's exactly what you're communicating. But we have to take a quick break, Adam Smith or not. It's Jerry Brisson and Dr. Phil Knight. And we're back in just a moment to continue this discussion here on Food First Michigan. contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back everyone. Thanks for being with us. Jerry and I waxing philosophical about the problem of evil as it manifests itself in food insecurity. And um, why do we even have it? Why is it here? We kind of covered that in that, that segment, Jerry. Uh, but there's some some pretty strong statements that you made there uh, about this and I like those statements And you know, I, I don't I, you know nobody's ever gonna mistake you as your favorite color is plaid <laughs> 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 you, You're gonna be pretty clear about what you think and why you think it and what you believe and and that's part of the, 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 the value that you bring not only to this work, but also to the show So uh, there was a statement there about, you know, when we talked about the the debate between personal responsibility and the responsibility we have as a culture to to care for one another and to be there for one another, even at a cost. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us? Yeah, so
1: so probably i mean self interest right is a is a huge motivator i mean you know and this is a philosophical idea that goes way way back i mean again long long generations lots of very smart people can talk about self interest and it's and it's how it uh, affects our behavior but but let's just start with the idea that whether your point of view is that people should take care of themselves, or whether your, whether your point of view is that life isn't fair and we have to help other people and, and how it, wherever you fall on that continuum. The bottom line is that if you want to live in a world that's good for you, you can't ignore the fact that not everybody is there yet. And if you do ignore it, you're going to have other costly problems to solve. And so, so what are those costly problems? Well, you can talk about, you know, in some cases, the costly problem is the cost of, of health care. And you can say, well, then don't provide health care. Well, then you have other costs, right? The more desperate people get the more you know, significant societal problems start to come out. And I mean, you don't want a desperate society where most people don't have nearly anything they want because you just didn't care about them. And you said, let them struggle along. And there are certainly many examples of history and, and revolutions and societal upheaval that we know enough to avoid, right? We don't want that. Nobody wants that, right? right. So if you don't take it to that extreme though, and you, and you say, well, let's not go to that extreme, I still think that when when you when your kids go to school you want them to go to school in a place where all of the kids are eager to learn because the more eager every kid in school is to learn the more you're going to have success for your own child in terms of their own learning. And so you, you can go to not quite, you know, the, the dystopian extreme and just talk about practically speaking, it's just better for everyone if, if people have enough, right? So then you get to the question of, well, how much is enough? And for some people enough is never enough. And, and again, life is complicated, but in spite of the fact that life is complicated, being committed to a society where people are generally uh, well enough off that they can explore their, their potential to the greatest possible extent. I think everyone is, is better served by that. I also believe, and again, this is research-based, that it's also a lot cheaper. You know, when you solve the, the, the problems of food insecurity in particular, which I know a lot more about than than housing or clothing or some other issues, um, the evidence shows pretty clearly that to, to make sure kids are well-nourished while they're in school, uh, you save an awful lot of costs compared to remedial education later because they mm-hmm. couldn't focus on learning. And and what, you know, and those costs look like an awful lot of different things, uh, but, but even You know, when you think about people go to jobs that they hate going to. Well, is that you want to live in a society where people hate their jobs? I mean, it makes no sense, right? I mean, you know, so you can say, well, it's up to them. Not really. You know, a lot of us are affected by things that are outside of our direct control. So anyway, that's probably enough said about it. But I do think that the value of, of really figuring out how do we get people's basic needs met so that they have the highest chance of accomplishing their potential success whether that's according to you know a plan that they've established that's you know really compelling or whether it's you know a less compelling plan for them still it's important to give people the most opportunity and once that's there well then I think personal choices end up dictating more or rightly dictate more the level of comfort that people have. I mean, you know, somewhere in there, I think is the right answer.
0: Jerry, about um, halfway through this segment here, uh, let's switch gears. We talked a lot about the personal responsibility aspect of this, the cultural, the society uh, responsibility. There's a, a, a paper that we've been examining and it has in it a section, a brief history of hunger in America and it, it talks about some of the origins of why we have hunger, and we you you've kind of brought that out for us already, but then you as you read through the history of hunger in America, you see where the government is is working to to help its citizens and um all the way through uh, the you know there was a time where Where for example people here in Michigan will remember just a few years ago, but I'm talking back into the 1930s where Where milk dairy farmers were pouring milk out in the ditch and people were standing in line Just trying to get a pint of milk for their kids that the government stepped in began to buy this product and then to To begin to distribute it into families and communities that needed it so there's an entire history of how Government has stepped in on behalf of its citizens to ensure that they had the right access to the food that they both want and need. And I know you've studied history quite a bit in this. So what are what are some of your thoughts there in regard to to um, government and society's role as we move through uh, this process of creating a solution to food insecurity. <laughs>
1: Well, I think that government, as a um, as an entity that that is charged with the care of its citizens, right? I mean, you know, and, and however you organize that government, fundamentally, the care of its citizens, I think, is is you know its primary responsibility. So so the debates are always around you know for who for how much for how long I mean you know the, the it's it's always about you know is it worth doing or not and and the best policies that have been created in that in, since and why we talk about the 1930s is because it's you've got the industrial revolution that has happened you're switching from an agrarian society to an industrial society And you have the Great Depression, right? So there's a lot of really significant things all culminating in the 1930s that put government in a different light. Uh, Prior Mm -hmm. to the 1930s, you just didn't have masses of people all in one place where some of the some of the evidence of poverty becomes really, really, really clear, um, but you also have, you know, starting in the 1930s and working forward, a lot more effective farming and a lot more available food, and so you have this this insulting and disgusting dichotomy of food being thrown away while other people are starving. I mean, so that really comes to light in the 30s and really in in post World War II, uh, the the mm-hmm. the recession after World War II, and and a few other places in our history where, where the average person becomes aware for the first time, maybe, that you have food being thrown away in massive quantities while you have hunger at the same time. And so those motivated government to act. The other thing, though, that's really interesting about that history is malnourishment among children creates during World War II a security problem. A national security issue because a huge percentage of, of um, the people who were drafted during World War II, and I'm trying to find that percentage. I'll find it after the break. I'll say what it is. But okay. a huge percentage of those uh, of people being drafted weren't healthy enough to join the Army, and they attributed that to hunger. That was during World War II. So, again, you, you see the advent of uh, school food programs really as a, as a direct result of national security issues so you know that's another interesting point in that history when you talk about the government acting and why it acted it didn't always act out of a sense of compassion but it acted out of a sense of its own self-interest and in what we have to do to care for all of our citizens citizens and that was particularly interesting during world war ii well in
0: 1946 was the invention of the national school lunch act in order to to address hunger among children uh, so so some people might think "Oh, that 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 came about just a few years ago like you know 30 or 40 years ago or something no 1946 was the national school lunch act and and again it was meant to address a need and along that line that you're talking about national security there is a more recent report uh that it doesn't address malnutrition but it does address obesity in children Uh, The name of that report is a bit callous. I'll just say it. I didn't write it Don't don't write to me and and be mad at me when I tell you the name of it But the name of the report is too fat to fight and it has the same national security implications that you just mentioned Jerry Um, we've got to take a break, but we're coming back interesting conversation here today We're talking about food insecurity why it's a problem how it came and, um, and you know, we're, we're trying to really pull this out so that we understand exactly how we got here, so we know which way to go in order to solve it. He's Jerry Basson, I'm Dr. Phil Knight, and we're back in just a moment. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. We're back. Jerry Besson, Dr. Phil Knight here. We're talking about the origins of food insecurity in America. And Jerry, you promised us a, a statistic about, about people who were not accepted into the the World War II effort. What was that?
1: Yeah, so it's 40% of draftees were rejected from duty due to poor health. 40%. That was during World War II. So, I mean, again, uh, uh, you know, the, the point that we were making there was that There is a connection between food security and health and between food security and national security that, you know, the the government um, has understood for a long time. And so we still have government programs that significantly help address hunger in our country. I do think, though, we're at a point where we have to rethink some of the ways that we solve these problems from a cost-benefit perspective, right? What's the best way to solve the problem? And maybe the best way to solve the problem as imagined in the 1940s or 1950s or 1960s is a little outdated based on what we know today. I also think that we have to, we have to look not just at you know, how much food and how many people, but did it make a difference and how do we know it made a difference? So so I, yeah. I, think, I think we have to be doing those things because of the fundamental differences of opinion that people have about how much help should we be giving people? And for some people, should we give people any help at all, you know? Um, and so I think data, evidence, Um, Again, the scientific method is not something we invented, but it's something we can certainly use to try to have a theory that says if you give people this much food for this long, this is what happens to a kid's behavior in school. This is what happens to, you know, people being able to make ends meet at the end of the month. This is what happens to chronic health conditions. I mean, we know that there are outcomes that we can prove and we've got to be about those proofs and we can't do that alone either we need partnerships we need partnerships with healthcare we need partnerships with education we've got to see these problems in the complex context that they exist and involve people who have a vested interest in the solution and that's the game right that's the game we're in and it's the game we got to play
0: Yeah, Jerry, let's take a little walk down memory lane here uh, and we'll do this at a very high level for our folks. But you, you talked a lot about the 1930s and and the resulting New Deal that came out of that with President Roosevelt. Um, I talked about in 1946, there was the National School Lunch Program. It took about 20 years later until we got the breakfast program, oh, just by the way. Uh, and so, uh, but every It took us 20 years
1: to figure out kids need breakfast and lunch?
0: It took us 20 years to figure that out. <laughs> well, it took us 100 years to put uh, wheels on a suitcase, so yeah. don't get too excited here. Um, so let, Senator Ken, uh, when, when Senator John F. Kennedy was, uh, was running for president, he talked about, and I wanna get your reaction to this, as he visited the Midwest and Appalachia, especially in West Virginia, he saw what he described as hidden hunger. Do you think hidden hunger still exists today?
1: Yeah, I, I think probably uh, it exists almost as much as it did then. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, it's not quite as much, but I think it's almost as much. And part of the reason is that um, what we see in our own personal life tends to be what we believe. And I I know this is a blanket statement and it can be argued pretty vehemently, but I'm still gonna stick with this point for a minute. If you've never met a hungry person in your life, you're gonna think there aren't any hungry people, or you might say there's some hungry people, or you might Mm -hmm. say it's a problem for them but not for me, right? Those are all things that happen just out of your own reality. I've never met a hungry person. Why should I believe that they're there? Well, so the truth of us is that we don't like to say we need help. We don't like to tell people that we're struggling. We want to solve things on our own. And that's the majority of people everywhere. Um, And so, so in a lot of communities where hunger exists, there's nobody who's hungry stepping up and saying, "You know what? I'm struggling. I, I, my kids don't get three meals a day. We sometimes miss four, five, six meals a week." Nobody, nobody steps forward and says that. And and the shame of that is the reason because they're embarrassed, right? And you can't you can't deny that. You know, you, you know, pride is not all bad, right? Pride is is some of what, you know propels us to do better. At the same time, sometimes pride gets in our way. And one of the things it gets in the way of is seeing a local, real picture of hunger. So I think hunger is hidden. I I don't think a lot of people ever see it in their own personal life. And so they struggle with believing that it exists. But it does exist.
0: Well, I think uh, representative Mari Manoogian who was on the show a few weeks ago who is a representative here in this, in Michigan uh, from in and around Birmingham talked about um, the free and reduced rates within the school district in Birmingham, which was a good indicator of food insecurity within that area and and I've heard I know stories personally of people who are um, in, in management positions at at some of the companies um, who who ran short when they were laid off and back in the, the recession of 2007 and 8 that ran short of money and um, and their kids in Birmingham did not have access to school uh, breakfast and lunch because of the, the parents couldn't pay the the lunch bill so. If the point being that Representative Manugian was making, hey, if it exists in Birmingham, it it exists everywhere in the state, and and if you don't believe that, check your local school uh, uh, free and reduce percentages, and I think it'll give you a pretty good indication that it's it's not quite as hidden as you might think it is or you wish it was. Jerry, I want to I want to push you forward on the timeline here. Um, Because uh, this is a huge help to us and our work as we try to meet this need that's in the in the community. But it was um, uh, President Kennedy who then gave an uh, an executive order uh, that that commodities would be purchased and and uh, by the what is now the USDA and would begin to be distributed across communities in America. It was Lyndon Johnson who created what we call snap which was the food stamp program. Um, And and that began to make a difference And those are all great tools in the toolbox uh, for helping us uh, create the safety net as you as you speak. But Jerry I want to highlight this and I think it's a, a population that gets overlooked people who are not eligible for snap. They make too much money, but they don't make enough money. And that's a segment of the population that is very dependent on the work of the food banks here in Michigan to help them get through uh, the days that they have more month than they do money.
1: Yeah, and you know, that sadly coincides with households that have children. So so when you've got parents who are doing everything you would, you would hope they would do, they're, they're, they're getting jobs that they, that they qualify for, they're getting promoted in those jobs, they're, they're showing up for work and doing everything that you would want them to do, right? And at the end of the month, they can't make ends meet. Uh, so, so what happens is they get promoted again and then they lose their childcare benefit, and then they lose their SNAP benefits, and then they lose all of the benefits that they got before they were making more money. And so you put them in this precarious position of actually making more money if they don't get promoted. And, and that comes in the form of both the income that they make in the household and the cumulative benefits they get by the means testing that's part of the, how you qualify for those benefits. And so this is called the benefits cliff. It's something we've talked about, and it's something that legislators have known about for a long time. So why don't we fix that, right? Why don't we fix the benefits cliff? Well, the, the main reason we don't fix it is because someone has to pay for it, right? That's the main reason. We say, wait a minute, who's going to pay for that? Who, uh, you know? But, but uh, you know, at, at some point, yeah, someone has to pay for it. There, there's no question about it. But it's our responsibility to figure that out, right? It's our responsibility mm-hmm. to incentivize work and incentivize the things that we want people to do so that we all get to the place we want to be. And, I, and it's a challenge. But it's a challenge we need to rise to. I mean, you know, we can't just say, well, this is hard, so let's not do it. That's a bad idea. Or, well, we don't like the situation, but we're not going to make this a priority. Oh, Really? So you're just gonna keep a bad thing going because, well, I just don't have the energy to fix it. I mean, isn't that the very behavior that you're trying to get people to stop? <laughs> you know? It's like, yeah, it's hard, but do it anyway, right? So we talk a lot about we have to do more and better. We have to do more and better. And that's the example we have to live if we're gonna solve complex social problems like food insecurity and hunger.
0: Creating that personal will so that we can manufacture the political will yeah, right. That's, that's, that's what we want to do. Jerry and I are back in just a moment. You come back and be with us. Jerry, last word before we end this uh, philosophical edition of Food First Michigan.
1: Well, last word is, you know, we are here for reasons, we wanted to to look at those reasons and kind of cover some of the history of how did we get to where we are today. Um, Life is complicated, the solutions are gonna be complicated, but a wise philosopher that I know says something like, it's not bigger than us, it's not better than us. I'm sure that philosopher could probably finish that better than me.
0: And it's not beyond us to solve. Time for a little food for thought. Food insecurity didn't start with us, But let me ask you a question. Have you ever purchased something that wasn't new? Perhaps a lawnmower, a boat, or even a house? More than likely you had to do some repairs, some fixing up on whatever it is you purchased. Well, food insecurity is no different. I didn't build the house I live in, but when something breaks, I can't go back to the previous owners or the builders and get them to fix what's broke. I have to own the problem, like I own the house. And food insecurity is a problem of our own making. And maybe we didn't do it individually, but we did inherit it. And so it is our problem to solve. And we start solving the problem of food insecurity by putting and keeping food first, folks, food first.